0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Exchange, the Reuters Breaking Views podcast on business, finance, and economics. I am Swaha Patanai, Global Economics Editor of the Commentary Team, and it's my pleasure to welcome Manoj Pradhan and Charles Goodhart to this week's program. Manoj is the founder of research firm Talking Heads Macro and a former Morgan Stanley banker who led the global economics team there. He also previously served on the faculty of George Washington University and the State University of New York. Charles is an Emeritus Professor of Banking and Finance at my alma mater, the London School of Economics. As well as a very illustrious career in academia, he's worked at the Bank of England, both as a monetary economist and later as one of the four outside members of the Central Bank's Rate Setting Committee. Charles Munoz, welcome to The Exchange and great to have you with us.
0: Glad to be here. A pleasure.
1: Now, the two of you have just published a book called The Great Demographic Reversal, Ageing Societies, Waning Inequality and An Inflation Revival. The timing is impeccable, particularly since a lot of people are wondering about how COVID-19 will affect inequality and whether huge amounts of fiscal and monetary stimulus are going to lead to a rise in inflation, or whether we've had a huge demand shock that will depress it. Your book is going to answer all of those questions for us, even though it was conceived and started before um, the COVID, because it's written about broader economic trends that go back decades and will continue as you lay out your thesis for decades. But um, Before we go into what's going on in the here and now and the pandemic, let's discuss some of those big themes. Perhaps I can give Charles the invidious job of briefly summarizing the thesis that you've laid out in a book that's, you know, taken a long time to write. But let's, uh, perhaps a minute or two to you, Charles, to just sum up what you
0: are laying out in your book. Thank you very much. Let me start by going back to recent history. From the very high inflation rates the 1970s the world has seen a steady disinflation a reduction in inflation and in fact during the great moderation the wonderful years between 1990 and 2007 which were the best years in the history of the world the central banks actually didn't have to do too much i remember being on the monetary policy committee at the time And we moved interest rates occasionally up 15 basis, 25 basis points up or down, but it wasn't a great problem. It wasn't a huge amount of effort. And in the last few years, since the great financial crisis, despite massive uh, monetary expansionary policies, inflation has actually remained consistently below target in most countries. So something is going on beyond monetary policy as such. Now, what we claim has been going on has been that the effect of globalization, uh, particularly the ability to shift production to low wage areas such as China, uh, East Asia, South Korea, and Eastern Europe, uh, once the Iron Curtain came down, uh, it's been possible to have a steady disinflation, particularly of goods prices, and also a shift of labor from manufacturing where they were relatively well organized and in trades unions to service sectors where they had much less bargaining power. And all that we have argued has been a major force behind the disinflationary pressures uh, of the years uh, since 1980, effectively the last 40 years and that has been due to a combination of globalization and also very favorable demographic developments because what has again has happened during these years until very, very recently has been that there's been a decline in the birth rate uh, bringing about a reduction in the proportion of young in the population. Uh, And the baby boomers were born just after World War II uh, all entered and have been moving through the working age. Meanwhile, uh, the extension of the expectation of life has led to an increase in the proportion of elderly, like me, uh, but the growth in the elderly has been rather slower until about 2010 than the reduction in the young. Though so the dependency ratio, the ratio of those who are dependent on others uh, to provide them with income, consumption, and food, the dependency ratio has actually been improving and an improved dependency ratio uh, leads to lower inflation. Now, these two factors, globalization and dependency ratio, are on the verge, indeed in the process, uh, of reversing. And they will be reversing relatively quickly, with a few exceptions. My colleague Manoj will talk about in a minute or two. Um, And that is going to mean, uh, that it will be no longer possible or not nearly as easy uh, to shift production to low-wage areas. Uh, and the, uh, the retreat of globalization, which has been given a, a, an enormous added surge by the effect of COVID and the sort of nationalism, uh, we're going to keep sort of any vaccine or protective personal equipment to ourselves, is going to mean that uh, there's going to be much more in desire uh, to have manufacturing production of all major goods in one's own country. And the reversal of the previous trends which led to disinflation uh, are likely to reverse the kind uh, of effects, Uh, inequality, particularly inequality between the relatively low skilled Uh, those who are working in factories uh, and the high-skilled with cognitive abilities. Um, So, the inequality will reduce, Uh, the disinflation of past decades will also uh, turn around, so we'll get much more in the way of inflationary pressures, Um, and the reduction in nominal interest rates similarly uh, will reverse. Uh, So, given that the demographic and globalization trends are in the process of reversing, uh, in our view it simply stands to reason that the basic underlying major trends in nominal variables, inequality and so on, which were driven in large part by those trends, will also reverse
1: the things you point out in the book um, and has been visible for some time and whatever the inequality is within countries, the inequality between countries has declined. Do you think that will change?
0: No, um, I not so much. I, 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 I think that it remains likely, though Manoj should add to this, uh, that many of the uh, developing countries, particularly in Asia, countries like China uh, like Indonesia, uh, like Vietnam, uh, will go on growing considerably much faster. Uh, they are on the catch-up process, uh, and I think that the catch-up process will continue. Uh, it, it's just that the ability of the West essentially to offshore production to much lower-wage countries is going to decline. I think Charles is... Mm-hmm. Sorry. No,
1: no um, go ahead, Manoj.
0: Uh, I think Charles is absolutely right. I, I
2: completely agree with him. I think one of the key changes taking place in the global economy is that um, the ability to transform uh, inputs into capital is changing dramatically. and a lot of the innovations we expect uh, will come out of emerging markets. So they have they have an ability to move a lot of the technologies that we are seeing being used in the West without the added burden of having to destroy, a vintage of capital that the advanced economies have, but that was seen early as a disadvantage for emerging markets. Now they can bypass an entire generation uh, of a fixed capital formation by bringing some of these technologies uh, uh, inwards. And at the same time, the amount of inefficiencies that they have been forced to release because of the challenges of COVID will accelerate much faster, giving them an edge. Right.
1: Nice. I mean I think one of the great things about this book is you're very clear about things that you're open-minded or agnostic on um, and also sort of things that could go either, go either way you mentioned automation automation and the final impact of automation on the trends that you're talking about is something one of the things that you were both a little agnostic on could you go into your thinking on that a little bit more detail and why it's not clear to you quite yet which way it will go
2: Charles, do you want to start here? And I'll, I'll jump in after you.
0: Uh, well, the decline in the rate of growth and in many countries, indeed, particularly the leading countries, such as in terms of, of past growth, such as China and Germany, where there will be an actual decline in the working age population, um, means that the overall rate of growth capita uh, is going to de- decline. Uh, we're going to be very lucky if we can maintain the kind of growth rates that Japan has in the past. Uh, this will be reinforced by the fact that the growing proportion of a- elderly, many of whom are incapacitated by various forms of the diseases that affect the elderly, will mean that an increased proportion of the working population will have to be shifted over to looking after the old. What that means is that the, the, the growth of those engaged in what you might describe as GDP increasing activities will be declining quite sharply. That means in turn that our rates of growth will go down overall unless there's an absolute miracle in terms of increasing productivity. Uh, we think that rather than fearing Uh, AI and robotics, we're going to need every last little bit of it uh, because as we're, I think, hope that we're going to go on to discussing the um, enormous amount of debt we've already accumulated, the only comfortable way out of having increased our debt so much is through growth. And unless we get a massive increase in productivity per worker, Uh, growth is actually going to be lower in future decades than it has been in past decades. So far from worrying about AI and robotics. Our view is not so much, our view is that we don't, we have no idea. We're not particularly expert in the course that uh, technology may take in future. Our view is rather that if it does uh, increase and lead to increases in output per head, so much the better. We're going to need it. So I'll add
2: just two uh, small points to that. The first one is I think people also make a mistake when dealing with uh, demographics and aging in not really understanding the nature of um, the what they call inefficiencies. For example, in the U.S., the two most inefficient sectors are seen to be healthcare and education. However, we we must recognize that there is a huge idiosyncratic element to the to. Uh, the treatment of uh, your patients and your students in each of them. So, Charles and I, uh, over very different time spans, uh, have uh, heard uh, that automation will soon replace teachers in the classroom on a consistent basis and it hasn't happened. Uh, In a very similar vein, I don't think it's possible to sharply reduce the number of workers who will be required to look after patients. You cannot offshore that activity. And the second point I would make, which is related, is most of the gains that we have seen uh, over the last few decades, uh, starting really from the late 70s, when China started opening up, is the offshoring of manufacturing. But of course, looking after the elderly, you can only do that to some extent, whereas maybe reading some reports and automating uh, some of those processes, but the actual job of looking after patients and the elderly is hardly something you can send overseas.
0: Robots have an empathy quotient of zero and there is a very, very strict limit as anyone who's ever been in a dementia ward will attest to the ability of robots and robotics to look after that can care for the aged. You need personal touch. You need people to understand what you are going through and feel for you. That robots simply cannot do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And given we will all sort of uh, probably need more and more care and we're all going to hopefully get older. I think, as you say, as you point out in this book, this is a huge area where labour will be needed. Let me, um, Charles, you mentioned earlier, let me touch on something um, that pops up in your book. And one of the arguments you tackle head on is that, you know, Naysayers will say, why it didn't this happen in Japan, which is often seen as the leader of you know, what you should look to happen in other countries if you're suddenly seeing very low interest rates, quantitative easing, asset purchase, um, that sort of thing. You point out that there are some specificities, which mean Japan's experiences won't be replicated globally. Uh, Manoj, perhaps I could ask you to touch on what was very different about Japan then, which has led to Japan's experience, and you don't expect it to be, you know, duplicated elsewhere in the world now.
2: Well, I think uh, put as simply as possible, Japan's workforce started shrinking at a time when the rest of the world had labor coming out of its ears. And the Japanese corporate sector was as alert as anyone else to catch that. And to use the rest of the world and the opportunities that were there outside Japan in a way that seemed as if they were burdened by what was happening within when the truth was really far from that. So uh, to elaborate very quickly, I mean, just the question to ask yourself is, how could it be that you could have the massive rise in China's fortunes over the same period that Japan was going through this very difficult phase of its growth, and yet the treatment of Japan has been mostly inward looking. How is it that we don't take Japan into a global context? And when you do that, three things emerge. The first is that Japan's productivity was actually excellent. Over that period, uh, Japan averaged growth rates of about 1%, its population was shrinking by an average of 1%, which means the difference between the two is 2% population growth. And as Charles often says, if you offered that to any advanced economy right now, they would bite your hand off. The second thing that was different and people miss is that the Japanese corporate sector was actually quite aggressive in investing abroad, particularly in China and Asia, where the population was growing and they had an ability to really offer cheap labor. Um, If you look at Japanese outbound FDI, both in manufacturing and later on in services, the proportion of activities that they had climbed dramatically, which meant that the corporate sector was actually not behaving as if it was burdened and had a heavy burden of debt on its shoulders. It was acting in a very rational way to actually use this massive supply of labor and increase its footprint outside Japan while understanding that the domestic regime within Japan was a lot poorer than what Asia could offer. And the third part to keep in mind is that the Japanese labor market is very different from the rest of the world. Um, and the norms, as are very well known, at least two things we have to keep in mind. One is that faced with um, uh, downside risks to growth, rather than cut employment, and and the contracts that people had assumed over a long period of time, I mean, they reduced hours uh, rather than wages. So the, the quantity uh, of use of labor on the statistics actually shows a very steady level of unemployment and far less fluctuation, whereas in the background, the use of labor was rather more cyclical. And the second thing to keep in mind is, A lot of Japanese corporates tried their best to get away from these lifetime contracts by moving into part-time workers. And when you see that increasing shift of part-time workers in the labor force, you can understand the flexibility that the Japanese corporates had because naturally the part-time workers have far less leverage in negotiating wages and hours and so on and so forth. So there was a lot more going on behind that was specific to Japan and Japan's evolution as a shrinking workforce against a burgeoning global labor force is really something that we do not have for almost anyone because everyone is going to see their labor force shrink.
1: Um, And there are those that say we're talking about shrinking labor forces and you also tackle this in your book, um, that India or Africa may fill this labor gap either because labor will migrate to where it's needed or more likely, given the, the contestation of immigration in most advanced countries these days, because capital to, will migrate to where the labor force can make goods uh, cheaply. You point out some weaknesses in this thesis, and you don't totally buy this argument. Do you, would you just expand perhaps on why you don't think India or, and Africa can fill this gap?
2: With pleasure. I mean, the first thing I will point out is, is we do expect both regions to do very well. I think they will be very well placed to absorb a lot of capital. They will be very well placed uh, to be a destination for where people can latch on to a labor force that is not showing the same pressures. But when you look at the global context, all of the growth that is coming from um, the global economy right now has a very, very, very high correlation with the number of economies that are going to age. In other words, the manufacturing floor of the world is going to age almost entirely. So the job that lies ahead of India and Africa might almost be to do the work of three Chinas. I don't think they can even come close to that. And one of the main reasons for that is while, while we have um, significant conviction that there is no real middle income trap, Uh, There's no um, real barrier that says once you leave a certain, once you achieve a certain level of per capita GDP, uh, you tend to stagnate. That's not the case. But we both firmly believe that there is an administrative trap, which is that if you can't open your economies to transform the incoming capital into output beyond a certain level, you're simply not going to be able to absorb infinite amounts of capital in the way China could. So, China had um, not only a centralized administrative uh, administrative regime, which, has, which was heavily synchronized with its monetary policy, but it also has a long, very, very, very long history of grassroots development, of guilds, of the transfer of uh, professions, and a way of disseminating that information that has remained with them for centuries. Now, some of that may also be true in certain sectors in India and Africa. There's no saying that. But... It's not something that is pervasive across these economies. And in the absence of significant administrative improvements, that's hard to realize. So what could stop these? Well, first is clearly the politics. But uh, you also only have to look at the significant differences between India and Africa, while both of them have a population that is similar. You're talking about more than 50 countries in Africa uh, that split that population, which means 50 different national policies and 50 different barriers to get over before you can actually think of a unified approach to transform that capital into output. And
1: labor mobility is like exactly as you say. saying.
0: Could I possibly just add, what is missing from most academic macroeconomic growth models is the importance of good governance. And uh, China did have a competent administration focused very clearly uh, on the need for growth. And the question of whether Africa and India can actually bring their advantages of a young working force uh, into significant growth does depend enormously heavily uh, on their success uh, in maintaining a good, capable, a non-corrupt governance. Uh, governance is really key.
1: Absolutely. Manoj, um, you mentioned uh, the middle income trap. Let me talk about another trap that you address in the book. Um, perhaps, Charles, I could ask you to take this one, which is the debt trap that central banks seem to have created for themselves and the world. Um, would you just outline your thinking on what this is for people who may not be as familiar as you with uh, the central banking world?
0: Uh, what has happened over the last thirty or so years has been a continuing reduction in nominal and indeed in real interest rates to a level which is exceptionally historically extraordinarily low. Um, and that has intentionally Uh, led firms and allowed governments to raise their debt levels remarkably. In the case of firms, uh, one of the problems has been that the increase in debt has not been matched commensurately with an increase in fixed investment. Rather much of the increase in debt has been matched by a reduction in equities uh, via buybacks uh, and dividends. Um, And that, again, has meant that the rate of growth of the economies uh, has been subpar, which has led the authorities to maintain very low interest rates. So it's all gone on. The result has been uh, a faster accumulation of debt, both in the public sector and in non-financial corporations, than in any equivalent peacetime period has been really quite remarkable and that was the case well before the COVID crisis. The COVID crisis of course has put an enormous upward ratchet. The effect of that is that the debt ratios are now so high that any sharp or sudden increase in interest rates uh, would trigger a recession among corporates and would increase the debt burden that the public sector has to bear uh, really quite dramatically. And neither of these are palatable. So that the increase in debt has already reached the level that it is very hard, or would be very hard, uh, for central banks uh, to increase interest rates without running into serious political and macroeconomic problems. But if they can't raise interest rates seriously at a time when interest rates, uh, sorry, at a time when inflation is likely to be going up, uh, that will mean that inflation will get worse and could become endemic uh, in the system. So, in a sense, we're in a trap, in that we've already raised debt levels to a level to a point that it makes it very hard at a time when growth is going to be pretty low. Uh, to envisage um, any increases in interest rates uh, sufficient to um, uh, bring about or to restore uh, price stability um, and hold uh, debt in check. Uh, And it's very difficult to see how we're going to get out of this. Uh, And clearly sort of cancelling debt or defaulting on debt is extremely difficult. so the likelihood, in our view, is that there will be some increase in inflation, and with it, some increase in nominal interest rates as well.
1: And, I mean, one of the things you outline in your book, and perhaps um, bring in politics as well into, is the risk of political interference into central banks' uh, mandates, or even in central banking, which is so far for the last couple of decades. I mean, you were, uh, you were instrumental in setting up the Reserve Bank of New Zealand's 2% inflation targeting regime. Um, but that man, those mandates can be changed by politicians. You also uh, evoke the prospect that there would be clashes and, you know, impinging more, uh, politicians impinging more on central bank independence. What we've seen recently is a shift in the Fed's policy framework, which means that the US central bank will tolerate a period of higher inflation if price rises have been subdued for a while. I mean this is the central bank itself making a change which means that this conflict or potential conflict gets pushed further out or is avoided totally and one could argue this is necessary for the good of the whole economy i mean do you think this will be replicated in other regions um say that the ecb or you know places where it's the independence is more clearly enshrined as you point out in the book
0: the answer to that one is clearly yes um And over the next few years, uh, most central banks will actually welcome uh, some, at any rate, small uh, overshoot of inflation above the inflation target. Uh, In particular, in America, which is undershot for some years, they will say that this is simply necessary uh, to return uh, inflation on average uh, to the kind of level that they wanted. Uh, the problem that we see is that we don't see these inflationary pressures subsequently declining, rather we think that they will actually strengthen. And that means that by the time the central banks think that they might want to take steps to return the inflation target back to something like 2%, um, it's going to be very hard to do so and then what does your infl- average inflation target suggest? That you actually undershoot, you go below 2%? And the idea is in fact, I'm I, ridiculous. Uh, the whole of the American approach uh, is really conducted on the basis of the assumption that our thesis is wrong and that uh, inflation and interest rates are going to remain lower But very, very much longer. And this is where we differ from them. And it's an important difference. Uh, I think there's no doubt that uh, central banks will be happy with some increase in inflation in the near term. The problem is going to be what will happen about three or four years from now, or if as is feasible. the inflation rates actually start to rise to levels, say, above 4%, which actually make alarm bells uh, begin to rise. Um, and just let me add for the moment don't put any trust whatsoever in the current CPI figures in any country, because these are based uh, on the sort of proportion of the basket uh, from past years when this. The, the, the proportions of different goods and services that we buy are currently dramatically different. So the CPI figures are barely worth the paper they're written on, if indeed they're worth that.
2: One, one, one small thing to add over here is is something that, that we both have talked about. I think one of the things that has changed dramatically and has not yet been absorbed by financial markets and possibly central banks as well, is the nature of the policy stimulus that has come in response and the economic conditions that have persisted after the great financial crisis and now. But back then, there are two critical differences to today. First is that we were coming off the back of some severe economic-related excesses. Um, that usually takes a very, very long time to wean off and then recover from. And the the it was the commercial banking sector that was in the crosshairs. Uh, But these were institutions that were regulated by central banks who have a very, very good view of what they were doing. But when monetary policy and central banks were used to ease the pressures in the financial system, there's not really any... Constraint that the funding that they are given is used uh, it, it, Or translates into spending into the domestic economy this time around if you look at January of this year It is very difficult to find which parts of the global economy had excesses Which means if you provide adequate demand and offset some of the disinflationary shocks that we've seen so far you are likely to come back to the situation faster Um, But the dramatic difference in policy is that central bankers are no longer center stage, it's fiscal policy. And central bankers are financing fiscal policy, whether they do so explicitly or not, which means their ability to snap away from that role is going to be very difficult in the future, which leads us right back to where Charles has started discussing the inherent tensions that we will see between the two. Mm
1: And for those listeners who are very utilitarian and very interested in what you say, but want to extrapolate, I mean, you hint at what will happen to real interest rates, which is sort of uh, nominals after adjusting for inflation. What do you think, how will this play out in financial markets if, if your thesis is correct and central bankers are actually getting it wrong?
0: Well, let me start with the sort of the interest rates. What we are arguing is that the debt trap will cause politicians to put pressure on central bankers, pressure of one kind or another, not to raise nominal interest rates as much as inflation is likely to go up. So at the short end, uh, we think it's quite likely that real interest rates will remain very low, could even fall further. The ability of central banks to control interest rates is less the further down the yield curve you go, the longer out, uh, the longer maturity, longer duration you're talking about. So as the inflation starts to take hold and people see what is happening, we expect long rates to start rising. Um, And the yield curve we believe will steepen really quite strongly compared to its present extremely flat level. So at the long end, it's quite like quite feasible that long rates might go up above the rate of inflation. So you could have a situation where real rates of interest are lower at the short end, but longer than they are at the moment at the long end. So it's actually quite difficult to answer that because of the political pressures that we in, envisage coming on central banks to hold down short-term interest rates.
1: But so, the long-end rising sorry. also has implications for, say, equity risk premium and things like that. So perhaps, um, I, you know, the bond market may be easier to play, but what about the equity markets?
2: I think one of the key issues over here, is, as Charles was saying, is, is the pressures that policymakers will face uh, will differ from segment to segment of the market. So if you if you think about what the Fed would be doing or uh, other central banks would be doing when they stay on hold from political pressure, is actually running what uh, we would call pro-cyclical policy, which means you are really allowing growth to rise and inflation to rise despite a policy that should see them leaning against the wind. So initially, it's it's not clear that when the initial impulse from this recovery is in place, that equity valuations should suffer. Uh, We have seen in the past when growth has been allowed to remain unbridled, that real yields uh, and equity markets have gone hand in hand, and that has been a productive period. Of course, if it goes too far, then dollar strength also accompanies these uh, developments, and that tends to be a little bit more difficult for dollar-based investors that puts pressure on uh, emerging market economies and so on and so forth. That's very unlikely this time around because the difference will be the prospect of inflation. So you might, uh, despite seeing those real yields rising, as Charles said, it's not clear that equity markets beyond a certain point, particularly as Charles said, again, the, the initial period by which we welcome inflation and we say this was a good development. Once that sentiment starts turning sour, valuations do stand uh, uh, to, to suffer a little bit. The longer term also sees a more kind of conflicting narrative in that we think that the equilibrium real interest rate, something that we can't readily observe, will be supported a little bit more at least. And again, this is one of the things we are not 100% convinced on. But we think that in the face of dwindling labor forces, corporate should invest more. Uh, Or if you look at the housing stock, that's not likely to be readily transferred from the elderly to the young, which means we will need new houses to be built for the young. So against that background, the real interest rates start rising uh, and you have to provide a higher rate of return at a time when growth is low. So really, the longer term prospects for the equity market depend on that conflict between who can provide higher return, who is more productive, which sectors are benefiting and growing the right way and what emerging markets are doing in their backyards in order to really provide a, a release of those inefficiencies that I personally believe, and I think Charles uh, uh, would back me on this as well, is far easier to do when markets pressure you rather than you wait for reforms, which people put too much emphasis on. Oh,
1: well, Absolutely. And you're talking about sort of some of the policies, good or bad. Let me turn to the the present day and things are moving very fast. And, you know, you have a postscript where you point out that COVID will accelerate some of these tendencies, but governments are also undertaking a lot of policies that would have been unheard of um, in definitely from the political stripes that we see currently in power, say the conservatives in the UK introducing the furlough scheme, uh, business support. Do you think there are policies that are being unveiled because of COVID that will help address some of the issues that you talk about with the demographic problems? Or do you think there are policies that are actually going to exacerbate the demographic and other problems you identify in your book?
0: If one was only concerned with purely aggregate economics one would go down the herd immunity route and simply allow it to work through while trying to maintain supply. Uh, But I think that that would be immoral. What's more, I think it would be in political terms impossible to undertake. Um, I'm bereft of quite a lot of sport uh, all our newspapers and uh, most of our television uh, focus on the, what you might describe as the international table uh, of cases and deaths. And if you go for herd immunity, the international table of cases and deaths uh, is it strongly against you in the early years, no doubt about it. And I think that that means that political pressures and in my view, on moral and ethical grounds correctly, had no real alternative, no real alternative, but to undertake the kind of responses in terms of lockdown and quarantine that they have. That's not to say that they've done everything right. Uh, In particular, uh, in my own country, the UK, the early failure to protect care homes, and what you can only describe as a as absolute chaos uh, and inefficiency and insufficiency of the testing and tracing program uh, have have been appalling. Uh, But generally the the response, the fiscal response, has been correct Um, and I think inevitable. Uh, The problem is that what has happened uh, has greatly enhanced and accelerated the kind of reversal of trends that we've already uh, mentioned. And the worry that both Manoj and I have uh, is that this is not really at all reflected uh, in mainstream thinking or in any central bank policies. They are not even considering in the slightest what might happen if we are right? And if we are right, the problems that central banks in particular are going to face some years down the track are going to be vastly more difficult to resolve than the problems that they faced in the past. And they haven't done all that brilliantly in the past either. So where we are going to go in the future, all that we can say in a sense in conclusion, is we wish everyone the very best of luck, because if we are go- if we are right, they are going to need every little bit of luck that they can have. You know, best of luck to them.
1: Um, let me put the devil's advocate view to you, um, as given. We un- we don't have a central banker here to defend themselves. What, the argument would go, I guess, something along the lines of there has been a huge shock. Different country- countries have protected businesses to different extents. Um, but there is going to be scarring in economies, even those that have you know, extended huge amounts of uh, loan guarantees or furlough schemes and things. The labor market will be scarred. There will be businesses that will never come back. I think, Charles, you were talking earlier about we consume things very differently, and inflation statistics not being worth the paper they're printed on, or not being printed on, but pixels they're using. Um, but the other thing is that some of the consumption patterns may be changed. a more long-standing basis and that the businesses that deal in those things like cruises or whatever will be affected in the long term. So the unemployment issue and the scarring of the economy issue, a central banker might argue, is going to push out the time period over which they need to worry about your thesis than might otherwise have been the case. How would you reply to that?
0: I think it depends in large part on how the Covid pandemic plays out, which of course we have absolutely no idea about. If vaccines are not available, uh, then what will happen will be a whole series of fluctuations uh, in cases and deaths with the humps of the spikes, the extent of the spikes declining over time. And that will mean that all the points that you make about the recovery being slow, Uh, and unemployment remaining very high uh, are are bound to be correct. Uh, If, however, we get a successful vaccine, and it's applied to virtually the whole of the population, um, then uh, the extent to which we go back to our previous pattern of consumption, including cruise liners and airplanes, is very uncertain. And I'm sure we would, after a successful vaccine, go back quite a lot. I All this talk about the death of cities and uh, the death of flying and the death of tourism, uh, if we get a successful vaccine, are vastly overstated. Um, and people like uh, traveling abroad. They like cruise liners, and given belief that it will be entirely safe to go back uh, on a cruise liner I think most people will so I'll I'll add a couple of small things
2: to that I think the first thing to keep in mind here uh, to um, just reiterate something that Charles was saying the longer this pandemic lasts the greater is probably the capital destruction that we see in the economy and therefore a lower ability to bring employment back to the level. So if you look on the high street today, even if your cafe is open, the footfall in those cafes is very limited, uh, which means they can hire only a fraction of the people that they used to in back in January. Now, if that cafe closes, and I'm using that uh, metaphorically, uh, you cannot hire anyone back. And that would probably be more likely if the pandemic drags on. However, as Charles says, if you do get a vaccine back, you would move very quickly from hiring just two people and back to the seven or eight that you used to before. In the meantime, what has changed is that policymakers really can't afford to fail. And the nature of the stimulus this time is different. Instead of going to banks who would try and safeguard their balance sheets and possibly be happy with a rate of return, no matter where it comes from, the money this time is being injected directly into the hands of businesses and households who are not really looking for a rate of return, but they are looking to maximize utility and looking to maximize production and profitability. So if you take a very quick peek at some of the household savings rates that you have there, the US household savings rate peaked at 32% in April. It is somewhere around 18% right now. That is a lot of pent up savings that is probably going to find its way back into the consumption of services or into housing, or into durable goods items. I mean, if you thought, I'm going to save money for six months and buy something, on a normal basis, that would never happen. But you've done just that right now, and that's why some of that savings ammunition is still quite strong.
0: And again, people are, are, have been saving because they don't know whether their job will still be there. And, again, and it, it does depend on the way that COVID plays out. It does depend on the speed and success of getting a vaccine. And we can't tell. We don't know. will be the, the, without a vaccine, uh, things will remain very difficult for a very long time. With a successful quick vaccine, there could be a snap back and you could get really quite a lot of re-employment, and with it inflation, really pretty quickly.
1: Right. Um, We're nearly out of time but if I get your message correctly central banks are in for a terrible time in the short run and then for a different reason in the long run seems to be the sum up. I don't know who'd want to be a central banker these days so maybe it's just as well Charles you're no longer on the MPC but uh, don't have to tackle these horrible uh, decisions. I will wind up here by thanking Minoj, Charles, both of you for giving us so much food for thought. And just a reminder to our listeners that Manoj and Charles' book, The Great Demographic Reversal, is out now. If you want to know more about the ideas and themes we've been discussing today, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Exchange, which was produced by Freddie Joyner. You can find other interesting conversations like this one on your favorite podcast platform or on our website, breakingviews.com. Catch you next time. Thank you.